That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey everyone, I'm Ian DeBorha and welcome to IMDb's Movies That Changed My Life, a podcast where your favorite stars break down the films that made them who they are today. This week's guest is comedian, podcaster, and director Scott Ackerman. You may know Scott as the host of the comedy Bang Bang podcast, but today he joins me to talk about his 2020 Emmy nomination in the Outstanding Short Variety Series category for Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis, the movie Sorta Uncut Interviews. Scott and I talk about working with Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton on Between Two Ferns, the complexities of shooting an entirely improvised movie, and the three movies that changed his life. Once again, if you're enjoying the show, please be sure to give us a star rating and leave us a review because every single one counts. Thanks to Asbiv and Hannick Meet the Press for the most recent five-star reviews. Thanks so much for listening. Here's Movies That Changed My Life with Scott Ackerman. Scott, how are you doing on this lovely, lovely Saturday? Ian, I'm doing great. The fact that it's a Saturday is a surprise to me, as all time has no meaning anymore. <laughs> so thank you for being my human calendar. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, jumping on last minute. I'm very excited to talk about the movie. Well, thank you for having me. Are we just going to thank yeah, each other? Yeah, we're just going to thank each other. The for entire the episode? Yeah, that's how it goes, you know? So big news in your world, uh, Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis, the movie Sorta Uncut Interviews, uh, was nominated for Outstanding Short Variety Series of this year's Emmys. The film itself was probably my favorite comedy of 2019, and the, uh, the Sorta Uncut Interviews was the like uh, secondary auxiliary piece to it. So do you want to talk about that, uh, the film and, and the nomination? Yeah, well, you know, uh, we, we made... The film Between Two Ferns, the movie, based upon the web shorts that we've been doing ever since uh, 2009, I think, is when we first started them. And, um, you know, we've done them off and on over the years and won two Emmys beforehand for for those. And um, so when we got the opportunity to do the movie, I was trying to figure out how to do it. And 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 one of the things that Zach and I really wanted to do was shoot the entire movie the way that we shoot the actual web shorts, which is improvised. We thought, okay, well, if we do a whole movie improvised, um, what would that be like? So what we realized was that um, we had a great opportunity to um, not only do the movie, but separately film 15 separate Between Two Ferns episodes at the same time that wouldn't end up in the movie other than just a few short clips. So really, when we were making the movie, we made these shorts um, separately and with always with the intention that they were going to be mainly seen online, which we thought was a great sort of 
not only a way for us to do more episodes, um, but just kind of, you know, both advertise each other, which we thought was cool. Between Two Ferns was a moment in my life when I saw that for the first time. And I didn't know if it was real. Like, I legitimately mm-hmm. could not tell, like, what was going on. Um, and I had to, like, rewatch them and try and see if I could catch any, like, tells that, like, this is, like, Zach as a character and these people are in on it. Uh, and the movie continues that. Like, you guys do not let up you know, 10 years down the line from the original series. Uh, And it's almost like more brutal in a lot of ways. Like when you're getting to see (laughs) Zach and the cast and crew, like running around uh, going from like location to location. Um, Was it hard for you guys to manage uh, the realness of, and sort of the organic feel uh, from when you were a little smaller to now when you're making movies on Netflix, you're getting nominated, you know, Zach and the character is like such a big deal now. You know, we we took pains to really mitigate the scale of everything. So I'll tell you what what really happened was the first episode we did was Michael Sarah, which um, yes, okay, uh, is that the super bad? He signs the super bad. Yes, uh, yes, okay, yeah, oh, yeah. We we filmed that one. We did it for a pilot I was making, um, and we did we shot it in a basement. Weirdly enough, uh, a floor below where I ended up editing the movie. Um, but we, we shot it in a basement with, with Michael and Ruben Fleischer who directed Zombieland and a bunch of great Mm -hmm. movies. He directed it. And, um, we essentially, it was just Michael, Zach, Ruben, a couple of camera operators and myself and the other producer. And, and it was really small and we, we were in a tiny, tiny basement and we just like, were shouting out jokes and it felt like we were just doing it for ourselves. You know what I mean? Yeah. So then the second episode that we ever did, which by the way, we never thought it was a series. We just did one <laughs> episode and we were like, okay, that was fun. And Jimmy Kimmel um, reached out to us and said, hey, do you want to do one of these for my program? Um, and we thought to ourselves like, what? Another episode of Between Two Ferns? Well, we already did it. Why would we do another one? But we we agreed to do it. And it taught us a lot of lessons because, and you know, Jimmy's the greatest. Um, but the situation we found ourselves in because we were doing it for his show, it was on a soundstage, Mm. um, and his entire crew was watching. So there were like 50 people watching (laughs) all laughing and it, it just didn't have the same feel as the first time we did it. So, so we thought that was it and we weren't going to do another one. And then John Hamm is our friend and reached out and said, Hey, I started doing the show called Mad Men. Can I do one? And we were like, oh, okay, yeah, why not? And then, but then we started doing them in the smallest places possible. We started doing them, um, the, the John Hamm and the Natalie Portman and the Charlize Theron ones yep. we did in a, uh, a gardening shed, um, that funny or die had <laughs> that was filled with gardening equipment. So like we, we really want, anytime we did these, we wanted to make sure that they were as small as possible. To to the point where we said like if you're a if you're a celebrity and you come do these you can't bring friends you can't bring your publicist um, we really need the to be comfortable while while we do them so over the years we've just done them in like tiny hotel rooms and all this kind of stuff so when we did the movie um, we really took pains to make sure that that feeling was still the feeling that we would get. So we basically like kicked out all non-essential crew. Um, and we, we put everyone on monitors like outside far away because number one, you don't want to hear them laughing, but just number two, it, it, when you have that feeling of intimacy with, with a famous actor, 
they end up feeling more comfortable and feeling like they can do anything and 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 you get better stuff i think so right. th- that's what we did throughout the movie how do your restrictions change when you have uh special guests like uh presidential candidate Hillary Clinton or then president Barack Obama um how, how do these restrictions change for for you and Zach they're a little bit different but but you know that just becomes a conversation with their people about us trying to keep the uh the process pure. And then eventually we come to a compromise for, for Obama. Obviously we couldn't say like, Hey, you can't bring anyone. We, (laughs) (laughs) Secret service has to stay outside. You know, you guys, no, no plus threes, Mr. (laughs) Obama. No, we, we, we mentioned like what our process, what we wanted it to be. And then it was a conversation between them of how few people could, could be there in the actual room in the white house. Um, for, Hillary Clinton, though, weirdly enough, like we pretty much held the line on all sorts of stuff. We said we want it to be as small as possible. We want um, it to be improvised. That was one thing that we couldn't do with. Oh, I interesting. Mean, with with President Obama, they improvised a little bit, but it was pretty much a scripted right. thing because and we tried. We really tried. And, and eventually <laughs> I remember the day where we finally got an email like. Yeah, we know you want to improvise this, but there's just no way that you can improvise something with the president of the United States. Like we need we need there to be a script. But with Hillary Clinton, we we really pushed back and said, no, we want this to be improvised because I, I just think that when when politicians do like they're on late night shows and yep. and they're doing comedy bits, it can feel really canned and forced to me mm-hmm. um when they're working from a script. So like if you see you know, a presidential candidate when they used to do like stuff on the top 10 list for David Letterman or right, something like right, that right. or something on Fallon, you know, you can always tell they're reciting lines. And and I love the the feel of Between Two Ferns because it's improvised and it's just people in the moment. So we always try to replicate that. Well, Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis, the movie, you can watch that on Netflix if you want to watch uh, the store to uncut interviews. Uh, that's on the Netflix is a joke YouTube channel, correct? That you can catch I th- those? Funny or Die, definitely. I'm not sure if they're still up on Netflix. I mean, they came from Netflix, so right. I hope they would still be up there, but I haven't <laughs> checked. So let's go to the movies that changed Scott Ackerman's life. This is 1984's This is Spinal Tap. It is a 7.9 out of 11 uh, with 126,000 ratings on IMDb. That 11 is real, if you can go check it. What uh, does directed- the 11 stand for? Uh, you know, it's usually out of 10, but then this time we put it out 11. Oh, the, I get it. Okay, yes, yeah. the, oh, I remember <laughs> that joke from this movie that changed my life. <laughs> uh, written by Christopher Guest, Michael McKean, uh, Harry Shear, and Rob Reiner, starring Michael McKean, Christopher Guest, Harry Shear, and Tony Hendra. Uh, the synopsis, Spinal Tap, one of England's loudest bands, is chronicled by film director Marty DeBerge on what proves to be a fateful tour. One of the most iconic comedy films and mockumentaries of all time. Uh, Scott, when was the first time you watched This Is Spinal Tap? So this is one that I did not see in the theater because um, the age I was, uh, I was not allowed to see certain movies. So uh, this was one that I definitely had to catch up with on video. Um, But I tell you, I was, I I knew, I almost felt like I knew everything about it because, um, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles and and, uh, the LA Times covered it a lot and was kind of championing it. And, and I, I remember the ad for it was a parody of the airplane ad, mm. uh, the movie airplane where the, the airplane yeah. is twisted into a pretzel and the, the poster for spinal tap replicated that, but with a guitar. So, and I wasn't allowed to see the movie airplane either. So it was like <laughs> these kind of forbidden movies that I wasn't allowed to see. But, um, I, in 1985, 
um, when uh, finally Christopher Guest um, joined the cast of Saturday Night Live, that's mm-hmm. when I became like a, a huge Christopher Guest fan. And I was really into that whole cast with Martin Short and Billy Crystal. Um, and Harry Shearer obviously was there for a little bit at the beginning of that season. And so I, I just got really into the stuff that Christopher Guest and Harry Shearer and Martin Short were doing together. Um, so that's when I was able, my friend, uh, from high school, he could rent movies cause his parents didn't care, you know, <laughs> about anything he was seeing. So we would rent movies like that and watch them over at his house in the afternoon. So that's the first time I ever saw it was probably 1985, 1986. Talk about when, when you finally got your hands on it, what was that like? It was, I mean, it was really amazing because I had never seen a movie like that where, um, it, there's just a feel to improvise movies that you can't replicate where, where when people are coming up with stuff on the spot, um, they deliver it differently than when it's a pre-planned line. Mm. And, and so it, it just was really, really interesting to see these incredibly funny people improvising their way through a movie. And, um, you know, obviously I loved what everyone else loves about it, which is the incisive satire of the music industry and the heart in it and, you know, all the hilarious musical numbers. But what I really responded to is just the feel of comedians goofing around together. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's this feel that um is really hard to replicate when you have a script. And it's this thing, it's a space that I work in a lot. Um, Between Two Ferns is all improvised. Um, my television show comedy bang bang about half of it was improvised my podcast is all improvised so it really is something that there's just a feel to it and and this is the first time i ever saw that that improvised feel put into a narrative form and it it really struck me were you doing like improv in high school or anything like that i was doing in in high school i was doing um plays you know musicals choir Mm -hmm. but the one thing that I was also doing at this time was speech competitions. And so speech competitions, if you've never been to one, um, it's not just debate. It's also people can do these things like called dramatic interpretations and, and humorous interpretations. Right. (laughs) So I, I competed in the humorous interpretations category a lot where like you'd take, uh, a Monty Python movie and and do all the characters in it and stuff like mm. that. So I was I was doing that kind of stuff, but my only connection to improv at the time was at these speech competitions. Usually, once everyone had competed throughout the day, there was an hour while the judges were tabulating who won, and everyone would gather in like the common area and do improv. And huh. <laughs> yeah, and it was the first time I'd ever seen improv and it was really bad improv. That That's the other thing. It was all freeze right. tag, you know, which if you don't know what improv is, <laughs> there are various forms to improv and most people are are only familiar with the, the terrible forms. <laughs> so after you saw Spinal Tap, did you immediately go try and find uh, other movies or shows or, or stand-ups that did their style of comedy uh, like that? Yeah, it, it, other movies weren't really doing what Spinal Tap did. I mean, there's even parts in Spinal Tap where you can see the actors laughing <laughs> in yeah. the scenes, you know? Yeah. Um, which is so funny to me. Um, you know, there's a there's one scene right at the beginning that Rob Reiner is essentially like interviewing them and you can tell that 
he hasn't told them what the questions are. And he um, says, here's a review of your uh, movie Shark Sandwich. It just says, shit sandwich. And Christopher Guest starts laughing and he goes, well, how could they print that in a newspaper? Um, and, and that's the feel that, that I really liked. And, but there weren't a lot of movies that had that, uh, mm-hmm. it really, that was one of the few improvised movies, um, until Christopher Guest started making them with waiting for Guffman. And then, and then, you know, he became the sort of go-to with that feel. And, you know, I was working with, uh, Bob Odenkirk and David Cross at the time, and they're both in, at least Bob is in the movie. I can't remember yeah. if David made it into, but, but barely. And so it was fascinating to talk to them about the process of like, how they shot, what got shot, why, you know, what they ended up doing for their auditions. It never ended up in the movie, but it was really cool to to be able to say like, oh, wow, okay, I can see how they put this together and how much how much footage you have to shoot in order to come up with a 90 minute movie that where everything is funny in it. Yeah. You have to you have to shoot a ton of improv in order for the pace of a 90 minute movie. You just, you know, like for Ferns, we ended up, and this is similar to, to Spinal Tap. We, I watched the on the on the DVD when it came out. The hours and hours of deleted scenes. There's a whole Bruno Kirby subplot in Spinal right. Tap. He has one line in the movie, but there's <laughs> there's a whole subplot with him that is totally cut out. And 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 you know, I really realized just how much we would have to shoot for Between Two Ferns in order to to whittle it down to, I think, you know, we we ended up at like 85 minutes mm-hmm. of just 85 minutes of gold. You you really have yeah. to, we, we shot a four or five hour movie with tons of subplots that you never will see. Um, when are we going to get the, the, the Blu-ray release with that, with those features? I tell you, Criterion started doing, um, <laughs> blu-rays for netflix stuff with roma and the yeah, irishman yeah. and marriage story and i immediately was like tweeting at him like do one for between two ferns <laughs> it's not something i think that people would think to do but um it, it, for me as a comedy fan that that dvd oh, yeah. of spinal tap was so instructive um and and became a blueprint for how i was going to shoot this movie i mean it's cool that you do that because i feel like like i've said earlier i mean people who are into offbeat comedy or or trying to get their chops like you know your podcast and all the various shows you do are sort of like blueprints you know uh for young comedians and young creative people like that to try and get their way towards that so there's a, there's a yeah, parallel there i i really think that that um these days if you, if you're trying to make something like that the the more you can kind of figure out a process, the better. I mean, mm. the process of everything. I, I really felt when we did the Between Two Ferns movie, I was like, I am at the point in my life where I can do this, <laughs> you know. And yeah. I don't, I don't know if I could have confidently said that at any point before then, because it was a combination of um, knowing the right people to cast, knowing the right uh, a process that the movie had to be in, being a good enough writer where I could new structure well enough where I could even structure the movie. Um, and so, it, and, and having five years of experience on my own improvised television show, just knowing how to edit it really well. So I just, right. I really felt in the zone when we were making it. Right. Um, before I jump off of spinal tap here, do you have any favorite, what are your favorite one-liners or, or, or moments from, uh, the, or scenes from the film? Well, the, I mean, you know, there's the classics of Stonehenge and right. and God. the getting lost and all, all the stuff <laughs> that people have talked about over the years. But I I really just responded to, um, especially Christopher Guest's being in the moment. And um, you know, the I think it's the last line of the film, um, where uh, uh, 
Marty DeBerge, aka Rob Reiner, is asking him, um, you know, had he ever thought about what he would have done if he hadn't gotten into rock music, you know? Um, and he sort of spe- is speculating about Christopher Guest is speculating about, you know, what he what job he would have done. And um, then he says, well, I don't know. What are the hours <laughs> like <laughs> like the fact that in his mind, he's like he's like sort of contemplating what life would have been like. And then he's like, well, what would the hours be like? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like kind of next level for me of yeah. of just a guy in the moment, you know, trying to think of the funniest thing to say. Um, and that's what that whole movie is, is just like people trying to crack each other up. Fantastic. 1984's This Is Spinal Tap. If you haven't seen it, I'm unsure how you- What are you doing with your what life? What are you doing? Yeah, you, you definitely have to watch it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then go ahead and watch the rest of Christopher Guest's movies because they're all fantastic. Yeah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's move on to your second pick. Excited to talk about this one. This is 1985's Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It is a 7.0 out of 10 with 48.4 thousand ratings on IMDb. Only a 7.0? What? I know, I know. It's got to get higher. It's got to be a 10. (laughs) Directed by Tim Burton. Uh, written by Phil Hartman, Paul Rubens, and Michael Vorhol, starring Paul Rubens, but he's credited as Pee Wee Herman yeah. uh, in the film, uh, and Elizabeth Daly, among many others. Um, talk to me. I mean, I know this is particularly a very important movie uh, in your life, so so talk to me about it. Yeah, this was um, in 1985 was really kind of a big year for me in terms of comedy. I in 1983, I think I'd, I'd seen my first Monty Python movie. And so I, I knew about Monty Python and I, I watched it on PBS here in LA. Um, and I would watch old SNL, uh, reruns and, you know, Eddie Murphy, I, I knew about it. I would stay up late very occasionally to see Eddie Murphy. So, you know, I had an interest in comedy, but suddenly in 1985, just everything coalesced and, and a lot of my main obsessions, um, over the years were happened then. So 1985 was the first year that I started watching late night with David Letterman, Mm. um, which was very, very important in not only in my taste, but um, just my career, because I I think comedy bang bang was sort of my attempt to make the late night with David Letterman show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and um, some of the writers on that, on the early years of Late Night with David Letterman, actually, when they met me, gave me a compliment saying, like, this is the kind of show that we always wanted to make, which was really nice. Um, so 1985, I was watching David Letterman, and um, suddenly he had this guest on, Pee Wee Herman, and I had never seen anything like it. It was so funny. All he ended up doing was he, he came out with a box of toys 
and and ran through all the toys and sort of played with them while he was being interviewed. And I'd never seen anything like it. And he said he had this movie coming out and um, he showed a clip. He showed the uh, clip from the bar scene mm-hmm. with all the bikers mm-hmm. where uh, he says, I say we let him go. <laughs> um, and I thought it was so funny. And I was like, okay, I got to see this. I've never seen anything like this guy. Um, but obviously he's really cool because he's on the David Letterman show. <laughs> um, little did I know that that Letterman, he was a, a, a semi-regular guest where he would appear every three months and do weird bits. And I went back mm-hmm. later and and caught up with all of those on YouTube. But um, so I, I remember I was on vacation in San Diego, staying at a family friend's house with my mom. And I um, insisted that when this movie opened, um, which was actually, I think it was... 35 years ago today um today today yeah weirdly enough um (laughs) i insist this was the day after this was saturday so 35 years ago from tomorrow (laughs) Um, (laughs) i i insisted that my mom take me to a local theater to see this movie because uh, uh, you know if i had been in la i would have just gone by myself or had my friend take me or whatever but i was in san diego and we're on vacation and it's just insane like mom you need to take me to this movie but who knew if it would be out for longer than a week, you know what I mean? So I, I, you know, movies would come and go so quickly. Right. They they would be there for three days and then go away. So I really insisted that, that my mom find a theater that was open. And, um, and so I went by myself, she dropped me off and I just sat there. <laughs> I sat there by myself <laughs> in the theater watching it. And, um, it was just such a culmination. First of all, I, I, um, I was really into Oingo Boingo that year. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so Danny Elfman doing the score was very important where I was like, Oh wow, this adds legitimacy to this. Um, Tim Burton, I had never seen anything he had done. This was his first movie first feature. Yeah. Um, first feature. I, I'd never seen his cartoons, but it just had such an incredible visual style where everything was shot. Um, so imaginatively. And then, uh, it's, it's just a perfect movie. I mean, the character, um, you know, Paul is doing such amazing stuff in it. He's just, every scene is killing it and so funny. And I came out of that saying like, this is the best movie I think I've ever seen. And it, it just, it became one of these things where I, I, I taped it on uh cable when it was on cable mm-hmm. and I watched it over and over again. So there was all this kind of stuff in there that I was like, this is really weird. And I, and I became like fascinated with, well, why does he buy a boomerang bow tie in the, in the gift shop and then never use never it ever again? Yeah. And, and these were burning questions that I had throughout my entire life. And then finally, when they released the Blu-ray, they released all the deleted scenes. And yeah, there's a scene where he uses the boomerang bow tie. But what, what's really interesting about it, if, if you see the, the, the uh, deleted scenes, there's probably a good 10 minutes that they cut out of the back lot. And it's such a smart edit. And it, it really teaches you a lot about editing because, um, you know, they paid off all that stuff like the boomerang tie and everything, but mm-hmm. um, it's just kind of boring. And it's when you see the movie, it just moves so quickly. And it's like, oh yeah, even if you shot something and it looks amazing, you should just have the freedom to cut it if if it feels like it's dragging the movie down. And so that's like there's like kind of two finales, right? There's obviously the backlog sequence, and then there's the sequence in the drive there where he watches uh, PW, like the, the yeah. film version of himself. And that like I think my favorite mo- moment in that whole movie is when 
Pee-wee is cameoing in the Pee-wee Herman film yes. when he's the bellhop because he's doing. We talk about that all the time. He's, he's doing, doing bad everything acting. wrong. He's, he's doing looking into wrong. the camera. <laughs> he's mouthing the dialogue. And mouthing just... the other mouthing the other person's dialogue is so funny. We <laughs> it's, it's we so on Mister Show we would um, Tom Kenny who who uh, was on Mister Show he was one of the cast members he plays SpongeBob SquarePants now mm-hmm. um, he um, he was fascinated with bad extra acting. Mm-hmm. Um, background artist acting. So um, there's one sketch in particular that I don't even remember what sketch it is. It's in a restaurant, but me and Bill Odenkirk, um, who was a writer on the show, we were trying to do the worst background acting where we were having a conversation, but we were both talking at the same time and using our gesticulating a lot with our right, hands. Right. <laughs> and then we were use we would like stick our fork in the food and use the food to gesticulate. And and Tom Kenny was the only one who ever noticed that. He was like, hey. Terrible background acting. I loved it. <laughs> and that's all inspired by, by Pee-wee's performance in there. Yeah, it's, it's such a good moment. So it, it was. it's just something I've seen it, you know, so many times. And it's one of the movies I've seen probably most of my life. And it's just so, it, it, it's, it's not even constructed necessarily well in terms of plot. It's just, it's moment to moment and every right. moment is a gem and it leaves you with just such a big smile on your face um, while also laughing, while also being scared. Um, it, it's just really, March, March. One of the, yeah, it's one of those perfect films. I think I haven't watched this in years. I mean, I have my memories of watching this when I was a kid, when I watched it again uh, ahead of this interview, I realized like it is such uh, an influence. Like it's clearly such an influence on so many of the comedians and comedy troops comedy shows that I love. Like, obviously, I think, uh, you know, you and Mr. Show, uh, I think the state is probably heavily influenced, at least, you know, by parts of this. Um, why do you think it resonated across, like, that this this generation of, of comedians? It's so weird that a movie like that, and this is something we were just talking about with Between Two Ferns, um, you, you, we didn't expect that to be suddenly embraced by so many people. So it's strange when when a, a strange little comedy film that by all rights should come out and be just a cult classic that only a few people have seen, suddenly all of the country and even the world says, "Hey, we all like this, and we're we're <laughs> paying attention to this." It's and it part of it is back in 1985, um, people MTV had come out pretty recently in the last mm-hmm. three years. And, um, you know, the celebrities were all these kind of striking broad characters. So you had Madonna, um, boy, George, um, you know, every, everything was very visual in the eighties. Um, whereas in the seventies, nothing was about image. Um, but suddenly MTV was there and the more kind of eccentric and outrageous you could be, it would, it would, it would capture, the imagination of, of America. So Pee Wee Herman became this thing where like everyone knew who Pee Wee Herman was because he was a very strong, identifiable personality. Right. Um, and, and it's crazy because the movie is not, I, I doubt they made it ever expecting that it would be the, the huge hit that it was. Right. I, I bet they hoped that it would, but I, I can't imagine that they went into that saying like, we've just made something that generations and generations <laughs> of people will watch for years to come. Um, uh, I, so Pee Wee or Paul Rubin's created character when he was at Groundlings, uh, one of the, you know, 
most iconic improv groups in LA. Uh, it started off as like a midnight show. I'm assuming you were too young to ever go to see those, right? I think he did those in like 81-ish. Yeah, he taped it for HBO and I ended up, after seeing Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I rented that um, okay. because it was on videotape. So uh, he he taped that show, which which is the the start of what ended up being Pee-wee's Playhouse and ended right. up being his show on Broadway. Um, but yeah, I was too young. I even though I was here in LA, I I, I could never, you know, was never allowed to go to the Groundlings until I was like <laughs> the, eighteen the or nineteen. Midnight show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so I totally missed that, but I saw it on videotape. Yeah. Did you happen to see his revival? Um, he did yeah. like he. You, how was that? Uh, seeing that on stage finally, it was really amazing. I saw it here in LA at the uh, the tiny. I forget what it's called, but it's over the Nokia downtown. Um, it's mm-hmm. not the giant Nokia. It's like the mm-hmm. tiny kind of club. Mm-hmm. And what was even more amazing was um, because there was some sort of snafu with changing the venue. And in order to make up for for the weird changing dates and changing venue, Paul um, ended up doing a live talkback after the show for every huh. performance. And he he did it for a long time. I remember it lasted over an hour of him just basically like talking about making Pee Wee, going into the audience, answering questions, all this stuff. And so it was just fascinating to hear stories like about his SNL audition mm-hmm. um, back in, I think, 81. He he just missed out on getting SNL. They gave it to to someone else like Gilbert Gottfried or something. Mm. <laughs> and he, he essentially, this is 1980, actually. He got on the plane to go back to LA um, after having just got the news. He he was like planning on moving there. Mm. He, he was like looking for apartments because they told him it was in the bag. And then he gets this call saying, hey, you didn't get it. And so he gets on the plane, goes back to LA and on the plane back to LA comes up with the Pee Wee Herman character <laughs> as a like, I'll show them yeah. kind of thing. And, and, and immediately like constructs the entire world in his head just on this plane ride back to LA. And when he lands in LA, he called, it was a relative, I think, and asked them for $5,000 to, um, to, to, to finance this show that he wanted to do. You know, it's just this incredible like story about determination and not giving up when you receive what could be construed as like the worst news uh, of your professional life. Can you imagine if instead he was on SNL during the 1980 season, the worst season of right. SNL ever, you know, and just and that was all he had ever done, you know, but instead he picked himself up and and made Pee Wee, which is just an incredible story, I think. Pee Wee's Big Adventure 1985. Watch it. Go find the Blu-ray. I haven't seen the Blu-ray special stuff, so maybe I got to I got to get those. Yeah, and, there's, and watch you know, a lot of there. a lot of the stuff that they cut out, you kind of go, oh, yeah, I get why that was cut out, <laughs> you yeah. know, but as a super fan. I'm just sitting there looking at it going like, oh, I see where that would have fit in the film. Oh, good cut, good cut. Yeah, you have like like your the way people do their fan cuts of like Star Wars. You have the you have yeah. the 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 Ackerman cut of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so let's get to the last film that we're going to discuss here. This is 1985's Back to the Future. This is a 8.5 out of 10 with 1 million ratings on IMDb. Uh, directed by Robert Zemeckis, written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, starring Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, and Crispin Glover. Um, 
The plot line, for those who are unaware, is Marty McFly, a 17-year-old high school student, is accidentally sent 30 years into the past in a time-traveling DeLorean invented by close friend and eccentric scientist Doc Brown. Um, so 1985, I'm glad again, that they said he was a close friend. Yes, close friend. <laughs> uh, so, so That doesn't 1980- sound weird, right? <laughs> Not at all. Um, so speaking of cultural moments uh, in the mid-'80s, this is another iconic one. So wh- how was it for you? This was the same summer as Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, uh, at the time I'm a huge, uh, Huey Lewis in the news fan. I still am. I just had the, the opportunity to interview him for something. And, um, so big Huey Lewis in the news fan, big, uh, a fan of the sort of Amblin movies like, uh, 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 gremlins. And, um, so pretty much anything that, that Steven Spielberg produced, I, I was you know, really interested in seeing, I hadn't seen used cars at the time. So I, I wasn't really, didn't really know anything about Zemeckis or Bob Gale. Um, but, uh, this was a movie that I remember back in the eighties, there were these film magazines that you could buy before a movie ever came out that had behind the scenes pictures right. and kind of told you a little bit about the plot. And I, I, I had it. I can't remember. And it told you about all the Easter eggs in it, like what was on the movie marquee and how that was an inside joke and stuff. I don't remember whether I had that beforehand. I can't imagine that I would have spoiled the plot for myself like that. Um, right. But I, I did for Aliens. Like I had that. I knew the whole plot for Aliens years and years before I ever was old enough to see it because I had these movie magazines. But um, it, it, I, I saw that movie and it it really, it kind of became one of my favorite movies of all time. I remember. Um, being on a date back in like 1989 um, and meeting uh, this is a first date and meeting um, the, the woman's parents um, and the parents grilling me uh, and saying like, well, what's your favorite movie? And I said, back to the future. And and they said, "Uh, okay, that's like a popcorn film, but what's your, (laughs) like, what's your favorite good movie? And I was like, uh, the Godfather. And and (laughs) the mom went very good, very good. (laughs) Like they were film snobs. (laughs) Um, but in my mind, I'm like, back to the future is a good movie. What are you talking about? Yeah. It's such a, uh, an incredible plot and script. It's really one of these things where you watch it and there, there's not a wasted moment. There's not a wasted line. There are a couple Mm of, of weird side, side quests in there. Like, uh, when, when, uh, uh, Marty McFly puts the, uh, hazmat suit on <laughs> and, and blasts metal into, uh, Van Halen into Crispin Glover's right. ears that I kind of go he's like Darth Vader. <laughs> yeah. That I kind of go like, well, you could probably would have gotten rid of that. Um, yeah. but, but everything in there, it, it's, it's so economical. Um, and it's, it's like, I was, uh, reading the Billy Wilder, uh, Cameron Crowe book recently about, um, you know, about his life, but also about screenwriting. And, and Billy Wilder was saying like, if you, if in your third act, you're not paying off everything that you've set up in your first act, you're not doing the job. And back to the future is one of those films like the apartment. I feel like where it, Mm -hmm. it is just paying off everything that they have set up in the first act in such a, a way that it takes you several, several viewings to really, see the subtlety that's happening in it, you know, like the Twin Pines Mall becoming the, I think it's Lone the Pine. Lone Pine Mall. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, just because he ran over a tree and changed the future, you know, like the, it's just little tiny stuff that aren't pointed to in the way that uh, uh, sometimes a movie would, which is like, hey, remember that Twin Pines thing? <laughs> uh, 
Um, like, like he would like a lot of movies. It would be you know he's driving back and he like, he double takes at the mall to make yeah. sure the viewer sees it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But they don't do that. It's very very subtle. Um. And and it's just one of those great premises of um. Well, if this is true, then what else is true? Which is a, a good way to to write in general. It's it's sort of a, an Im- improvising uh, mantra, which is okay. Well, someone comes out with a crazy thing. If that's true, what else is true about it? And that's a, a really good way to do improv is to investigate. Like, okay, that is reality. Well, if that were true, then this must have happened, right? And then that leads to so many great improv scenes. But it, it's also a great way to do a movie where you go, okay, you have this premise. If, if a, if a guy truly were to go back in time 30 years from now, well, what would happen? He would meet his parents, you know, well, what, what happens if he meets his parents? He might accidentally break them up. Well, if that's true, he would have to get them back together or else he would never be born. Like, it's just such an incredible, um, script where they set up so much stuff and then pay it all off in spades by the end. So what was it like growing up? I mean, you have sort of like, in terms of pop culture, you have Pee Wee Herman and you have Marty McFly. Um, Marty McFly, I imagine, is the coolest guy on earth uh, in 85 and, and Pee Wee Herman's like on the opposite side of that. What was it like for you, like in terms of like your personal like pop culture, um, like the effect Marty McFly had on you? Well, I grew up in, and this is going to come as a shock to you, <laughs> Ian, but I grew up as a not very popular nerd. <laughs> um, I don't know if you can relate. I mean, you're so cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at your your the background of you have a lightsaber behind you and a, a, Ninja uh, Turtles. Ninja Turtles. You do have a football helmet, which is kind of cool. But um, but I know um, where you're coming from. Yes. <laughs> so so in high school, I was this nerd, and and you know, but I really wanted to be kind of a Marty McFly. So, um, but my way of being cool was like there's a there's a picture of me and I think you can find it online where um for the homecoming dance um I was not the homecoming dance I'm sorry the homecoming game the football game for the halftime show mm-hmm. uh my high school um a bunch of people put together sort of a tribute to like what was going on in pop culture at the time and they came and said hey do you want to you love Pee Wee Herman so much do you want to be Pee Wee <laughs> And so there's, so I bought a checkered suit and a red bow tie, and I weirdly enough already had a giant fake ear <laughs> um, yeah. um, that I'd won from the radio station KFI. They used to give them out as promotional <laughs> items. And so there's a picture of me as at 15 years old, uh, dressed as Pee Wee Herman, like holding up the huge fake ear to my head. Right. And so that was my attempt to be cool, like Marty McFly. Like when Back to the Future came out, I was like. <laughs> plotting i remember we would have a we had a lip sync contest every year and i was plotting like how to do johnny be good as a lip sync where i would replicate everything that happened <laughs> right, in the, the movie the, the duck and walk and stuff right? thinking that that was really cool <laughs> and that would like <laughs> make people really impressed <laughs> um, and um that was one that i i i never got together uh uh but and thank god <laughs> but um <laughs> But yeah, that was, that was, uh, you know, I thought, yeah, Marty McFly was the coolest, but, um, I obviously wasn't, <laughs> you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the process of, of filmmaking or, or, or making a show. I mean, you talked about, there's obviously such a difference between, uh, the improv polish of between two ferns and this is spinal tap and the four year plus writing process of back to the future, like crafting, like I know the original DeLorean was supposed to be like a fridge. 
And there was like a subplot of where Marty drives into a nuclear explosion and then that got changed into the lightning strike tower. Um, What parallels do you see between like the polished uh, Zemeckis Gale script and the completely improvised perfection of of This Is Spinal Tap? Well, you just, you know, filmmaking like this is, it's a process and you you have to really, you know, when I was growing up and and kind of watching all these like movies from the early 70s the easy riders and the you know the aforementioned godfather and and raging bull and scorsese movies and all this you right. kind of you kind of think to yourself like well these writers wrote this incredible script and then this director directed the script as is and then the movie came out and uh you know it's because everyone's a genius and you you know you don't want the studio to mess with what you're doing and all this kind of stuff and you you don't really realize what a process filmmaking is um and even just writing in general i mean um it doesn't surprise me that that the back to the future script underwent so many revisions because um the between two ferns script underwent that many revisions mm. i mean we we had to reshoot um two entire uh, times in order to stick the landing on it. Um, so it really is one of these things where the more kind of in the moment you can be when you're filmmaking, the better and not beholden to like, well, it has to be this way. I, I think that the lessons that improv can teach you really translate to making a movie in general, because, um, you have to be in that, that state while you're directing. Otherwise, you're you're going to be too beholden to what um, you think the movie is instead of what the actual movie is. Mm. Last question here. Uh, so we have this is Spinal Tap, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, and Back to the Future. Uh, what is the through line you see between these three films um, as to why you selected these as the movies that changed your life? You know, Spinal Tap and, and Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Those were two movies that really made me want to be a comedian. Um, mm-hmm. If I were allowed to pick TV shows, I would have picked Late Late Night with David Letterman because mm-hmm. uh, those those were all the things that in 1985, when I was 15, I took a look at and it it it, it instilled this sort of passion in me of like, hey, I I want to do this. I want to make people laugh. Um, Back to the Future though was at the I saw it at the same time, and it really was one of those things that made me fall in love with with watching movies and. I watched it so many times the year it came out. I've watched it so many times on video. I just watched it recently with um, my uh, my little nephew who had never mm-hmm. seen it, and um, it's just so perfect. And it it I, I would say that those three movies, when I was making the Between Two Ferns movie, were movies that inspired me to 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 be a director. And and I, I think I even said uh, the, the weekend it came out that that really without Pee-wee's big adventure, uh, the between two ferns movie wouldn't exist. And I've always since then tried to make something as good as that and tried to make something that gives people the same feeling, you know, which is Mm -hmm. like, um, I, which is just inspiring them to, to not only to laugh, but maybe inspiring a generation of people out there of like, Hey, look, look at these people goofing around. I bet I could do that too. (laughs) You know, that's When I hear people have seen anything in my work and said said it inspired them to start doing something, that's like the ultimate compliment to me. So mm-hmm. um, these three movies have that in common for me. Fans uh, of these films, fans of you, I think this will be another inspiring conversation, getting really in the weeds of your, your mind behind these things. Once again, folks, uh, between 
Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis. The movie sort of uncut interviews nominated for Outstanding Short Variety Series. I'll be rooting for you on that one. You can Thank go you. to Fund or Die uh, to catch the rest of those. Again, 15 unbelievable <laughs> additional interviews uh, and, and along with the film. Thank you so much for, for hanging out today. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, yeah. Thanks so much. Well, I, I do have one question for you. Yes. Which is, your head has been blocky the entire time. What is the poster right behind you? Suspiria. Oh, Suspiria. Okay. From, All I uh, saw was like a little bit of hair. And I was like, <laughs> I got to know whose hair that is. Suspiria. So again, more evidence of me being very, very cool in high school. <laughs> <laughs> we're, t- um, we're two cool guys, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Hanging out. You know, sure. Talking about movies on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to head over to imdb.com slash podcasts for more content on Scott and to easily add the movies that changed his life to your IMDb watch list. 